Yep. I didn't tell you. <laughs> Sounds I was good. Stop. But yeah. What did I say? It's good. See, I have a structure. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. In today's episode, we will be talking about the findings of our research on the so-called golden age of short stories. This is a topic we were really interested in talking about because it's one of the things that goes around every time there's kind of an article about people paying writers or not is, you know, some of the stories about, I don't know, F. Scott Fitzgerald and some of the other people who made big bucks in the early 20th century on writing short stories. So we wanted to dig into it and kind of understand, is that true? Where did the myth come from? Kind of what information can you find out about it? So that's what we're trying to do in this episode. Is there anything else you want to say about the myth? I mean, just that basically the myth is that at some point in history, and there's an argument back and forth about what exactly what point that was, but at some point in history, it was possible for writers, as in just anyone who wanted to write, to make a living writing nothing but short stories. You know, the idea that you'd sit at your typewriter, pound out a short story, send it out, get a check, and not have to work a day job. And that anyone could do it. Yeah. Or at least the myth is not specific, right? It's just that, quote, writers could, quote, make a living. So yeah, it's not specific. And there are obviously some people who did do that, right? Like the first one, I think it's interesting, Chekhov. Russian short story writer was a doctor as well, but he earned most of his money from writing short stories, which is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there are people today who do nothing but write short stories and edit anthologies and do fine with that. So it's not like it's not like it's just suddenly gone either. Right. Yeah. Of course, there is going to be some truth to most myths, but I think and what's what's weird not just interesting, but actually weird, is that whenever people talk about this, they're, I don't even know why I don't even think there's a myth that he got paid. But anyway, the Hemingway's six word short story, which is for sale, baby shoes, never worn, is always cited as an example of one of these successful short stories. Allegedly, the story is, the myth is that he like won a bet writing that like he was at some lunch and he won the best uh, short story for that which is actually a completely fabricated story. And also he stole it from other types of very similar six word or very short stories that were circulating for like decades before this. Hmm. So the earliest version yeah. apparently is 19, from 1906. Hemingway was only six, seven years old. And, <laughs> and it was in a newspaper. He was a prodigy. He was, he was yeah, he, just yeah. that amazing. And he, he happened to write a newspaper classified section ad called something like for sale, baby carriage, never been used or something like that. And then it kind of, there were other examples of shoes and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's interesting. But anyway, so that's always talked about. That's just a random aside. That's not actually directly relevant for our topic, but just in case you guys wanted to have some literary trivia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Megan, let's discuss when was this so-called golden age? Well, so when I think about the golden age, it probably just has to do with the types of writers that I and short stories that I read but I always think about kind of the pulp era and you know the the like interwar or I guess the area all the way up through the end you know the 1920 through 
probably the 1950s. And, but that's just like my own, I don't even know where I got that. But when I think of the golden age of short stories, it kind of coincides with, with that period and like pulp magazines and the writers that I love to read and genre fiction. But you found some information that says that corroborates that one. Mm-hmm. The um, yeah. Writer's Digest article that says 1920 to 1950, but that there's another one that says 1890 to 1920. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you wanted to talk about why that one. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, I think actually broadly a lot of people kind of end up, more academic studies end up studying that whole period from kind of the late 1800s to around 1950s and 60s when there started to be a lot of consolidation in the publishing industry. And they kind of group that whole period together. But yeah, some people, specifically a publishing house, but I think there are others that kind of define it this way as 1890 to 1920. I think part of that is Mm -hmm. that everywhere in the UK and in the US, there's rising population and rising economic growth. And so people had a lot of time where they were kind of traveling or commuting or so on. And also potentially maybe a bit more leisure time than they used to have. And there wasn't that much to do. (laughs) So like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, there wasn't, you know, Netflix or whatever podcasts and everything else. There was just basically you could read, um, but you maybe didn't have that much time to read. You were reading on the train or something. And so suddenly these types of mass produced uh, magazines in the UK, the Strand magazine in particular, and something else called Evening News, uh, they started publishing short stories because people wanted entertainment during their commutes. That's how the story goes. Well, right. And like the materials themselves were not expensive. I mean, buying a newspaper or a magazine is a whole lot cheaper and easier to pick up at the train station than a book, a novel. Mm -hmm. And then you can just leave it behind or whatever. Yeah. And in the US, there was this 1879 Postal Act, apparently, which increased and there was also rising advertising revenues. But that Postal Act lowered the price for mailing and posting things. So as a result, yeah, these publications were doing really well. I think the advertising, that's an interesting, this is just me like saying things that have no basis in any sort of citations. So that's a really <laughs> good a, outtake. Can't wait. But <laughs> it doesn't even have to be an outtake. We'll, we'll leave it in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, I think there's, that's an interesting um, avenue to pursue for anyone who is, is considering this as like academic research as you know, in a magazine, you can have a whole lot more advertisements. I mean, books definitely have ads. I don't know. I don't see them so much anymore, but definitely the paperbacks I used to read as a kid, you know, that yeah, were like, that's right. all those order forms in the back, mm-hmm. right? For And well, yeah, a lot of like young adult books will advertise other stuff that the, publish- the publisher has. But, you know, there's like three or four pages of ads at the back of a book. But in a magazine, you can have an ad on every, you know, every 200 words, there's a big old ad mm-hmm. that tells you to buy something. And it doesn't even have to be another book. It could be a washing machine. Yeah, um, or some food so, or whatever. Yeah. Right. So I think that's, there's definitely some, some sort of connection to be made there. Yeah, for sure. About yeah the the medium, the the format of the stories. Yeah. But I think... All of that was sort of being explored at that time, right? Like you have this sort of advertising, early days of advertising as well. So, But I think that also holds with the 1920 to 1950 mm-hmm. model and especially the post-war, post-World War II era and the, the rapid economic growth that happened again and the growth in – there's a lot of talk about the growth of – of children and as a as a you know an economic group 
and as a specific demographic, children and teenagers mm-hmm. and people with income. And you see a you see a big boom in the same per- time period, really from like 1920, 1950 in comic books. And so I think, you know, the pulp genre magazines like the science fiction and fantasy and the detective stories and the same kind of stuff that was running on the radio, but in magazine form. Yeah. There's also a big growth in that. And I'm sure that there's some sort of, you know, correlation to be made there, too, with the broadening of purchasing power to, you know, the extension of purchasing power to children. Yeah, I think I was just thinking, but based on literally no information. So just general caveat, (laughs) like some stuff that we actually are citing, we read somewhere. Otherwise, it's just like our opinion. Um, So research anything in here that you don't believe. (laughs) And then let us know if you like if we're right or wrong and because we're interested. This is sort of our synthesis here. Yeah. So what I was thinking is that there was also huge urbanization happening at that time. And I guess probably the first generation, like the 20s, probably. I mean, I guess this is probably I read this somewhere, but I don't know where. The 20s was like the first time, you know, you're living in a city. So you don't have to like, I don't know, spend all day long in the field on a farm or doing whatever manual labor that you were doing probably generation or two earlier. And so, yeah, you, you're young, you're probably working, you have a little bit of money and you're living on your own. Right. And so you do suddenly have a really different lifestyle than other people had had in previous generations. Yeah. I'd be interested to do some research into leisure time and the mm-hmm. availability of leisure time to, you know, more classes than the leisure class. Yeah. Cause there's definitely something in there, but I don't, I don't have enough to even make you know, wild <laughs> assumptions <laughs> out loud right now. Yeah. Um, but, well, but so I am looking in like, so Catherine Mansfield, all of her short stories were published between 1908 and 1923. I mean, she died, so that put a stop to it. But I think <laughs> she died in 1920, early 1923. So, um, you know, clearly she couldn't publish after that. But yeah. I think, you know, and she was a contemporary of Virginia Woolf and a bunch of other people. You know, so I think there is an argument to be made there for that era, but maybe perhaps we squash the two golden ages together. Yeah, since one big golden age. We're proponents of that theory. Yeah, 1890 to 1950. <laughs> yeah, and there are the most famous people. So let's talk specifics, right? A lot of people cite F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I've already talked about, Sinclair Lewis, Ernest Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, and Theodore Dreiser was mentioned in one article I read in a book called A Companion to the History of the Book, which is actually pretty useful book and available online so that's interesting but I, th- I mean like some people were earning crazy money um before that you had sir arthur conan doyle so he was publishing approximately four pounds per thousand words or around 35 pounds a story but after the mid 19 1890s he never got less than 100 pounds per thousand words so it was really really good money at that time that's good money yeah <laughs> he also claims to have come up with the whole idea of writing like publishing short stories in that format in magazines because he basically said that the readers don't have the attention span to like remember what they were writing or what they were reading in the previous month and so everything needed to be kind of self-contained and uh, he basically said and this is a quote I believe that I was the first to realize this and the Strand magazine was the first to put it into practice so kind of early mid 1890s that's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, definitely the the whole serialized fiction thing presented problems because so I've been doing some research into Elizabeth Gaskell, who is most famous for being Charlotte Bronte's biographer, but she was also a really excellent novelist in her own right. But she wrote, she worked for or with Charles Dickens 
he edited some publications of that serialized and I don't have my notes in front of me so I don't have specifics but did serialized fiction and some of her novels were done that way and I mean aside from him just being a real asshole to her because he was really misogynistic and they had a terrible relationship but are you leaving that really, in yeah I think so okay. he said he said some really rude <laughs> rude things about her um basically just being how ter- how much he hated working with her as a, because she was a woman anyway so nice, nice guy yeah Dickens was fantastic so when she would then take those novels because they would then later be published you know take all the serial pieces and stick them together and they needed a lot of work and and there are you know literary scholars who analyze the difference between if you just smash together the serialized bits and then the finished novel and and that kind of thing so there's some truth to what he said about about them not working whether or not he is truly the first one to come up with it i don't know because we didn't i don't know either it just sounds funny thing to take credit for but maybe it's true well yeah and so then on the american side i was looking i mean you have we have o henry who is this really famous short story writer and there's an O. Henry Award, which is to like the best American short story every year or a best mm-hmm. American short story. And the award was first presented in 1918, which I think I think that's that's good evidence to back up our assertion that the golden age of short stories could span a period with that as right in the middle. Right. Because you wouldn't mm-hmm. have an award at the very beginning of a golden age, but you also wouldn't have one at the very end that didn't go away. I mean, the the award still is still being given. Yeah. So a good point. But you have so we found um the other shocking number I have here is that F. Scott Fitzgerald made between nineteen nineteen and nineteen thirty six two hundred and twenty five thousand seven hundred and eighty four for his magazine fiction and only sixty six thousand five hundred and eighty eight for his novels, which is like obviously a just huge money and he was like he wrote articles about basically how to spend tons of money, like the, I guess, precursor to the FT's how to spend it segment, <laughs> which is always insane. So that's crazy. And you had some other similar examples, but I think what's cl- not clear to me. That's like just under $12,000 a year, though, if you look at it, because it's like a 17 year span. Yeah, but for, th- I mean, that's in that money. For that time. So, yeah. yeah. So, like, for example, inflation calculator. <laughs> In 1929, they, uh, I think the Saturday Evening Post was paying him $4,000 for every story, which is roughly $54,000 today. Yeah, that's a lot of money. So, like, I would take $50,000 for a short story for sure. Yeah. it's Actually, it's $57,666.43. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I like to be precise <laughs> when the information is available. Yeah. Otherwise, wild speculation. Well, but so at the same time, though, you you ha- that's F. Scott Fitzgerald, and that's the Saturday Evening Post. And I was looking at Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury, um, kind of on the other end. Ray Bradbury in the late 1930s sold his short, or maybe 1940, sold his short story, The Lake, for $13.75. Well, that's like half a cent a word. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Kurt Vonnegut sold his first short story to Collier's for $750 in 1949. So a lot of it depended on your your market. So Vonnegut was selling one story for $750, and then Bradbury was making, quote, a full year's salary by selling short stories, but that full year salary was $800 around the same time period. And Which so, is about 7000 now. Yeah, so that's not exactly... I guess what I'm trying to say is that the myths surrounding how much you could make even for somebody who was really famous for writing short stories they're not there's just not a lot of 
hard numbers that go with it. And then when you do look mm-hmm. at the hard numbers you can get a hold of, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, you know, $800, he might have considered, it's also subjective, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. You know, he yeah. considered $800 a full year salary. His wife also worked until they started having children and supported him. And so, and I mean, Vonnegut's wives did the same thing, but I don't know. I just think to say like, oh, you can support yourself also depends on what you consider a level of support. Yeah. And there's just, I mean, these are people who like really made it, but this is so-called golden age of short stories. And there were a lot of other people writing short stories and I haven't found any real data on what they were making. Right. And it's also a, such a numbers game because both of those two writers are really well known for having just written, you know, one, two, three stories a week. I mean, Brad- Bradbury's famous advice is to write a short story a week. You know, you draft it on Monday and yeah. by Friday you're mailing it out. And Vonnegut was doing the same thing. In fact, he got his literary agent because he was sending his stuff to a friend of his at Collier's who was just like, I don't have time to read all of your terrible short (laughs) stories. Go here, send them to this guy first and sent him to a literary agent who then worked with him to develop his his stories until they finally found one that was good enough. But he was like, you got to quit sending me this stuff and it's terrible. Um so, you know, I, I guess that's one path to getting an agent, but I don't know if it's... Yeah, just annoy people with their, your spam. Yeah. Okay. I'm no. keep that in mind if my current path doesn't work out. <laughs> right. And so, you know, one of the things that that worked for them was just massive productivity. I mean, they just eventually like something's gonna go right. Like if you mm. send in, send a billion things around, then eventually like someone's going to take something. And I think that when people talk about being being able to make money off of short stories, I mean, they they leave out the fact that that kind of work, you still have to do that. And you could do that today and you probably could mm. do okay. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you send out two, a, one story a week to like a hundred different places. Yeah, I guess. But then, okay. So there's an article. This is is on orsonpublishing.com. So it's Orson is, I think, a Seattle-based publisher. And they wrote quite an interesting, I think, like insightful post about the market and sort of starts off obviously talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald because it's the most famous one and then says basically, imagine writing a 5,000-word story and receiving $10.80 per word. Compare that to today's landscape where a short story writer is lucky to receive $0.05 per word. So you're comparing $54,000 to $250.00. And, and then it kind of makes the point that if you go to poets and writers and you filter for places that pay <laughs> and then you filter for fiction, you only you go there's like 1,107 literary magazines overall when they did this search and you only get 176 results for like things that pay for fiction. Yeah. Magazines that pay for fiction. Right. And so like so even if I don't know if the average is $250 or anything. I mean, there are lots and lots of numbers on the internet but say you publish one of those articles or stories a week still like a thousand dollars a month maybe I guess that's about what the average is according to those surveys we were citing before those sort of doomsday surveys but it's it would be tough to live in probably any urban area for sure on that money yeah yeah it would be tough to live anywhere on that money and I think that's that's where it comes down to things like, you know, these men had one, they had extremely low standards of living, like to be to be perfectly honest, like, mm. you know, they lived in like really tiny houses or they, you know, rented apartments and their 
wives worked until they had children and then they weren't allowed to work anymore by society, not necessarily by their husbands. I think these men would have been perfectly happy to have their wives continue to work to support them. (laughs) But as long as, you know, the dishes were done and the kids were out of the way. Yeah. But no, and I agree. And I'm looking at the site Who Pays Writers, which is um, whopayswriters.com. And it's a great anonymous site that was started by Mangela Martin, who edited the anthology Scratch, which we have mentioned on here before. And it's about the business of writing and money. But she no longer runs Who Pays Writers. Um, It's anonymously run and supported. It's self-reported rates, right? So Playboy pays 16 cents a word. Now, I don't know if that's for fiction or nonfiction. They they do both. But I'm seeing everything in here that's like, it's mostly reporting. But it's everything from like mm-hmm. a, p- a penny a word, and then they haven't paid. That's the other thing is this tells you whether or not they pay or they pay to a dollar a word. So if you're writing a 2,000 word short story and you get paid five cents a word, which seems to be standard or a common rate, that's a hundred bucks. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And there are big prizes for thousands of dollars. And rumor is the New Yorker pays $7,500 for a short story. But, you know, that's the New Yorker. And they probably would pay George Saunders $7,500. But they might not pay me that even if my story was just as good, which <laughs> it's not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but that's because George Saunders is going to sell more magazines, right? And so yeah. that's the... I can understand the argument for the the lack of transparency because there is there is like a massive inequality in pay. It's not like it's not like I mean it is like the real world, but it's not like the real world is supposed to be where if you do the same job you get the same rate. You know, there's all sorts they say there's all sorts of other factors and there's like marketability and name recognition and et cetera that you're paying for. And so they don't want people they don't want people bargaining. Or, yeah. you know, not bargaining, but... It, well, and I think there are different factors that go into it, right? It's not just like one person's words are the same as another person's words, usually, like in terms right. of sales and sometimes in terms of quality. Yeah. So July 1st, 19, uh, July 1st 2014, Science Fiction Fantasy and Writers of America's rate for qualifying short fiction was six cents a word. That means like you have to have published in order to be a member of this association and you have to have been paid six cents per word in order to qualify as a published writer. That's interesting. But what's interesting... Which means that that's probably in the middle. It's not the bottom. Well, and so what they're saying is that um, they're hoping that it's ur- it's going to urge markets to pay writers more. And so by increasing their rates to join, their, their qualifying rates to join, they're hoping that it pushes publications to start paying more which i think is an interesting strategy and i wonder how that worked out for them (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting though yeah so that so six cents a word which is about what we said before five cents a word maybe it's around a hundred ish dollars for a typical short story and that is supposed to push up the price yeah interesting okay and somebody somebody in the comments on this this announcement crunched the numbers and said this is 2013 so this is five years ago but to make the U.S. poverty refer- level guideline income of $11,490, let's just not even talk about how that is considered poverty level in anything you make. Anyone who makes more than 11400 if you make $11,500, you're not poor in the U.S. Right. That's a joke. You'd have to sell 39 5,000-word short stories or one sale every week and a half, which gets back to that numbers game of that is... Mm. 
That's what the people who are talked about in the golden age of publishing did, though. I mean, if you look at like the Wikipedia list for all of these famous short story writers where we, you know, we still study their short stories in school today, they all published like a bazillion stories. Yeah. So it's not like (laughs) it's not like this. I don't know. When you think about the so-called golden age of short stories, you don't think of somebody like literally doing that every single week. And that was like how they survived. Do you think of like, I don't know, I do. I think of someone like lying in bed for three months and then getting up to write a short story so they can continue to basically lie in bed and write sometimes alcoholic stories in the middle of the night or something. Yeah. And that's not how it happened. I mean, they sat down and they wrote, you know, a short story a week and sent it out and, you know, maybe sold half of them. Yeah. So... Maybe the myths are there that you could support yourself on short stories, but maybe maybe a revision of like how that myth is envisioned is what needs yeah. revision. Or just, you know, that it has always been a hustle, right? That's not yeah. something new. Yeah, totally. Which is interesting. Okay, so moving to today, around, it's interesting that like 2009, there was a little bit murmurs in the New York Times about like possibly the short story returning to a golden age, but definitely 2013, 2014, 2015, when you started to see Alice Monroe winning prizes, George Saunders being super popular and so on, there being a lot of articles about how it's a new golden age of publishing in general, and then especially short fiction, and partly because Kindle singles program launched in 2011 as well. And what I think, I mean, just in general, we can debate because I don't know that that has really taken off in the way that those articles kind of propagandized at the time. It seems like they're just doing propaganda for Kindle singles, but <laughs> <laughs> like saying like, now we're all going to read these magazine style um, short stories. I don't think that's really happened. I think people do probably buy a lot more collections of short stories than they used to, but not like single short stories that are going viral. I don't see that that much. Mm, yeah. But also these articles are more like they always have this like, oh, in the old days, people used to make a lot of money back at the myth. But then they also say they don't mention anything about money now. And I think the reality is, as we've just sort of crunched some numbers, it's pretty tough. It's pretty grim. Probably before, but also now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it may be worse. Like it's definitely not kept up with inflation anyway. But yeah, because I was looking at the like half cent of half cent a word payment and that would be five cents a word now so maybe it has has kept up with inflation for those very low rates but i don't know and the other thing is there's still definitely this you know narrative that short stories used to be a way to break into publishing and now they're not and i don't know if they used to be a way to break into publishing or not it definitely seems to be part of the narrative of these famous writers that they sold a bunch of stories to magazines and then they got their novels picked up it definitely happened to bradbury vonnegut kind of published both at the same time and then like you said fitzgerald made way more money off his short stories than his novels but today you get you get a lot of the advice like don't try to shop around a short story collection to an agent if you aren't well known um, because nobody's going to publish it and nobody's going to buy it. So I don't know. Yeah, I read that everywhere. It's like somehow everybody assumes that that's correct. Right. And they also say that like just because you've published like go ahead and list your short stories that have been published in, you know, in your bio as your credits and some people get just definitely get discovered by agents through um, their Mm. short stories but that it's well what I see is like what I hear is like oh it's not necessary yes it doesn't prove anything about it just being published in a short story proves nothing and doesn't really help you for your novel is what seems to be the 
common wisdom, but equally, I don't know, emotionally for me and you, we've talked about this before, I think like emotionally it feels like you would feel more like a writer if you've published something. So maybe there's a kind of non-monetary and not even necessarily professional progression that comes from publishing a short story. Right, right. And I also feel like for me anyway, I've definitely used short story submissions as a way to what I've called practice getting rejected um, because Mm -hmm. I'm not as emotionally invested in the short story as I am in the novel. And so if it gets rejected, I'm kind of okay with that, which is probably why it gets rejected because it's not like, <laughs> but you know. Well, but you're not like submitting it to 7,000 places. You're, I mean. Yeah, submitting it to like five. So there's yeah. a difference. I don't know. It is, it is interesting. And I'm, there have been some short story writers who, you know, their books have come on the scene and, and they've made like a big, a big deal. Like I'm thinking of Carmen Maria Machado and her collection, Her Body and Other Parties. But that wasn't even the first thing that she wrote and published. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. I don't know the story about if a short short story market is the place to break break in anymore. It definitely seems like it's it's not. At least the gatekeepers keep writing blog posts saying that it's not. So Yeah, a lot of people say it's not. And since they make the rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I think it's just hard. I mean, I think it's like anything. It's not going to like give you, from what I can tell, based on zero experience, um, <laughs> it's not going to give you any additional credibility as a novelist necessarily, but it might give you a little bit more credibility as a writer in general, even just for yourself. Yeah. You're going to say, so what we're trying to say, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, is, you know, don't write off short, write off, ha uh, Don't, like, rule out <laughs> short stories if you like them. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything. You become a more polished writer in whatever form you choose. Yeah, and if you're willing to hustle, then, you know, you can get what you might be able to get there, just like the people who got just there like in the past. any other writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moral of the story. Yeah. But can I just read my favorite quote? I don't even like this writer. Sorry if anybody's a big fan of him and sorry if he listens to this. I guess he doesn't. Anyway, this 2015 article in The Spectator, also not my favorite magazine, by Philip Henscher. And but he has a pretty good image that I just really like. So he says he's talking about how like, okay, I'll just quote actually. The BBC pays approximately 50 pounds for a single short story, which is hardly worth anyone's time. Newspapers will occasionally publish one, but not in a way that could develop any burgeoning talent. Instead, there are prizes, some of them well-funded, but they are obviously too random from a writer's point of view. I've always wondered, attending one of these grisly award evenings, whether Conan Doyle would have been happy to put on a dinner jacket and sit with a smile on his face, waiting to hear whether he was going to be lucky enough to be paid at all for writing a short story. He might even have found the idea humiliating. With the funds one Sunday newspaper makes available for its annual short story prize, it could afford to pay handsomely every week for a short story. I thought it was an interesting perspective. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, that's Also funny. grumpy and funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's true. And, I, you know, I feel like it says something about something. Just the whole awards dinner banquet scene. yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And he also goes on to make the point that like it's scandalous that really talented short story writers now have never established a firm relationship with a journal like The Strand for Conan Doyle. So you're still constantly hustling. You're not just like, and you know, Saturday Evening Post for Fitzgerald or whoever. Right, Collier's for Vonnegut. 
Yeah. You don't get to just send in your article and get paid pretty well. I mean, at that point, it's not like... They don't have staff short story writers. There's no, there's like not a staff fiction writer. Right. Exactly. So I think it's an interesting point and also very descriptively written. Yeah. I like that. So there we are. So what's our verdict? Our our verdict is twofold. Is it it real? Is it busted? (laughs) I think... So I think we have a verdict on how long, when was the period. So I like that. So the period is longer. It's not one of these shorter periods. And on money, I don't know. My gut feeling is that I think as with anything, because I think because there's so much competition for people's attention, it makes sense in a lot of ways. First of all, there's huge supply. Like, so you have loads of people learning and writing in the short story form. And second, there's lower demand because people's attention is kind of constantly being distracted for with everything else, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. And I think also, and this is a whole other subject, but I think also there are so many other publishing forms and storytelling forms available to us now that it's diluted. And I think a lot of people just, you know, like there are fiction podcasts and there are, you know, YouTube series that people self-fund and there's people can just stick a short story up on their blog for free. And, yeah, you know, that's all available to consumers as well as to writers and creators. So I don't I don't know how that how that has diluted the pay market, but I'm sure it has. I mean, if people can just download, you know, wooden overcoats and listen to that, why are they going to buy some mystery science fiction magazine to read the short stories in it yeah i just think there's so much competition yeah for entertainment and so on and people probably have more time now also for entertainment but still supply and demand are not keeping up with each other yeah so i think that makes sense so that's our verdict yeah yeah that there was a golden age and but you know like today you had to work really hard to get there and um I don't know, maybe at one point it was easier to break into the market through short stories. But at the same time, I'm very suspicious of nostalgia in general. Uh, I don't think it's Mm -hmm. the most healthy emotion. So, or the most healthy mindset. So I don't know. I don't know if it, does it even do you any good to say things used to be better? I guess is like, maybe they did, but what's the point? If, you know, you can't time travel, so. Yeah, and it's like anything, like you have these filter of time and only the biggest stuff is retained, right? So you have F. Scott Fitzgerald or whatever, like the, these people rise to the surface through the filter of time. But everybody else who maybe never made it as a fiction writer, even though they wrote every single week a short story, like we don't know about them because they didn't make They didn't make it. <laughs> you know, so yeah. like what we're talking about now is like the whole entire pool, not the things that kind of filter through. Right. And the fact that we are finding, you know, 10 or 15 examples, I mean, back to our episode um about the numbers of who is actually a writer you know like let's say that that stays constant roughly i don't know i'm just going to adjust some vague amount for population growth but so say there's quote 100,000 writers in the US today that was like roughly the number that we found um according to like the US government so say there were 50,000 writers 100 years ago okay well if we can only have like 15 of those that we can name like Mm. that just goes to show you like maybe this wasn't such a golden age after all yeah well it's probably like anything else like in the future it'll be like look how much money jk rowling made okay fine (laughs) 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 what about you know bob smith we don't know what he makes you know so anyway cool okay and one other piece of news 
So we, when we, in our, in our conversation with Jane Friedman, she mentioned Susan Dennard's newsletter where she talked about how much she has gotten paid for each of her books. She's written seven books. She's a young adult writer who wrote her first series was kind of a, a steampunk zombie series and then historic historical fiction that's set back during like the World's Fair in Philadelphia era. And then her second series is ongoing and it is the Witchland series and it's a fantasy series. And she talks about one, she's excellent. She is really forthcoming about she gives away talks about the craft of writing all the time and she's really kind and really helpful. But she's a full-time writer and she talks about how much exactly how much money she made and what that looked like and how it got paid. And we link to her newsletter where she did that in our show notes for that episode. Um, And we'll put that back in the show notes again. But Friday, she sent out an update with comments from her agent, Joanna Volpe, who I guess annotated that original newsletter to say like, well, this is actually how I see it. And yes, I agree with these numbers and or not these numbers because those are verifiable. But yes, I agree with this interpretation. And this is some additional information. So we highly recommend that you sign up for Susan Dennard's newsletter for just craft information. And I happen to really enjoy her books as well. I haven't read them, but her social media and newsletter presence is our charming. Yeah, it's Susan Dennard, D-E-N-N-A-R-D. So definitely take a look at that and we will link to it in the show notes. Yeah. So that's just another money and writing update. Yep. All in the interest of more transparency. Exactly. So that's it for this week. Yeah, I think that's it. I I hear wild movement behavior <laughs> in the rest of my house so it looks, sounds like everybody's awake and the raptors are coming ready for you. to go <laughs> ready to go so i'm going to tell you to get to work uh you get to work and that's it for this week you can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on instagram at marginallypodcast our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com and if you haven't already please subscribe to our newsletter the sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's not say that now. I was going to say, that's where we get to at the end of this. (laughs) Uh, Don't listen anymore. Um, Anyway.